The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Fine-Tuning the Wave of Innovation in CLL. Personalized models for upfront and sequential care with groundbreaking treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NMB 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the session Fine-Tuning the Wave of Innovation in CLL, Personalised Models for Upfront and Sequential Care with Brain-Breaking Treatment. And, of course, we're focusing on CLL. Uh, I'm uh, John Gribben from London. Um, If any of you are in London next year, a big anniversary at our hospital, we are 900 years old next year, so come visit our old hospital and you'll be very welcome. Anyway... (laughs) I'm joined by a very esteemed faculty today, Barbara Eichhorst from the University of Cologne and the German CLL Study Group, Nitin Jane from the MD Anderson and Anthony Mato from MD, uh, from Memorial Sloan Kettering, sorry Anthony. There are major phase three trials that support the use of targeted agents in treatment naive and relapsed refractory CLL and we'll go through that all with you of course today, which is why of course we're talking about personalised medicine and targeted approaches. And I think it's safe to say, I think we'd all agree that the era of chemoimmunotherapy and CLL is largely over based upon the results of these multiple clinical trials of the available targeted agents that we have, all demonstrating superior progression-free survival and often overall survival for the use of these targeted agents compared to the comparator arms with chemoimmunotherapy. In terms of uh, current FDA approvals, uh, you'll see, of course, that a, a brutinib and a calabrutinib are approved for CLL and SLL. Xanabrutinib uh, um, is approved um, um, uh, in some instances, but not yet for um, uh, CLL. It's in phase three data with Sequoia, and you'll see that data shortly. Um, Pertobrutinib, which Anthony, I'm sure, is going to come back and talk about, in late-stage development, going through phase three trials now and randomized trials against conventional um, inhibitors are also underway. Um, uh, Namtabrutinib is in phase two trials. Uh, um, Veneticlax, of course, approved. And the PI3 kinase is approved but used less than before, not on the basis of a lack of efficacy, but on the basis of the toxicity profile associated with the use of PI3 kinase inhibitors. On the horizon, um, there are BTKI, Veneticlax, doublets and triplets, um, which we'll hear about again from the presentations you're going to hear now. Uh, The doublet of Ibrutinib and Veneticlax is already EMA approved, so Barbara and I have access to it, at least in Europe. Uh, Almost a first that I can remember that EMA has approved something before it's available in the US. Um, And the non-covalent BTK inhibitors, as we just alluded to, are very rapidly coming up uh, again. We've seen a lot of data on CAR-T therapy for CLL, uh, evidence in both uh, CLL and SLL, as well as in Richter's transformation. We've certainly got access to CAR-T for Richter's. We don't yet have access outside of clinical trials to CAR-T for CLL and SLL. And the next wave, of course, in terms of a lot of data you'll see at this ASH meeting in terms of BTK inhibitors and BTK degraders, which we'll also allude to during the presentations here uh, today. Despite all these advances, um, there's uh, real-world data that suggests there's a lot of work need to be done. The European Research Initiative on CLL, or ERIC, has done a large study, more than 9,000 patients, 
And they are able to demonstrate that although practice uh, has changed since 2014, chemoimmunotherapy is still used as frontline treatment in 60% of patients in real-world analysis. Now, much of that probably alludes to not the issue of <coughs> approval for the agents, but about re reimbursement, uh, and I think that those things are changing. In the US, the flat iron health data analysis from 280 US cancer centers, again, more than 3,500 patients with CLL initiating frontline treatment between 2015 through 2020, uh, almost half of the patients received uh, frontline therapy, a third received chemoimmunotherapy, and 20% received uh, some form of therapy, uh, either novel or chemotherapy, with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. But what you will, of course, see and be aware of is, as we're following and tracking these patients is the trend is clearly there in terms of moving from chemoimmunotherapy to uh, novel agents. The challenges that we're going to be thinking about and the ongoing questions we have are clarifying who are the optimal candidates for time-limited versus um, uh, uh, continuous BTK inhibitor therapy, uh, addressing the question of toxicity or treatment discontinuation with the use of continuous BTKI inhibitors, and Barbara's going to talk a great deal about this. We, the need for options in covalent BTKI uh, inhibitor uh, refractory CLL, and you'll hear that from uh, later on. And uh, the clear unmet need for what do we do for those patients who then become refractory to both um, BTK uh, as well as uh, BCL2 as targets for that therapy. So today's agenda, we're going to go straight into uh, the, the role with Barbara on continuous treatment and its role in high-risk CLL. We're going to look at the latest on available and emerging combination platforms, overcoming progression after a covalent BTK inhibitor, and of course the challenge of uh, that double refractory CLL. Now throughout, we're going to base our discussions around some case-type tumor board uh, questions of discussion and guidance. And again, just a reminder to keep your questions coming in. Any comments, uh, we'll, we'll address as much as we can. I want to say again a big thanks to our partners at the CLL Society. I don't know if Brian's here, but I've known Brian for many, many years. I thought he might be here, but if not, okay, we'll see him another time. The CLL Society, as you, for those of you who saw the video at the beginning, is an inclusive, very patient-centric, physician-curated, non-profit organization that addresses the unmet needs for many of our patients in the CLL SLL community through education, advocacy, support, and research. It's an excellent resource for both professionals, for our patients, and for their caregivers. Uh, you, as well as your patients, can utilize uh, the CLLsociety.org to receive up-to-date information on new CLL research findings and treatment options. It provides many free resources for patients and their caregivers, including but not limited to support groups, often which take place virtually, patient-friendly, basic, and advanced information. I think the one thing we all know about our CLL patients is they're very well informed about the disease. That watch and wait period gives them lots of time to know a lot about your disease and, and, and challenge you when you uh, start giving them information when they know it all so well themselves. Patient-centric research, uh, patient and caregiver education events and webinar, what to do about that big question we've had about CLL and COVID-19 the Ask the Expert Support Inbox that patients and caregivers can mail, can mail um, uh, CLL-related questions 
Two are CLL, well, we're all CLL physicians, but a CLL physician who proposes to be an expert who may be able to give you uh, additional advice. There's an expert access program that patients can apply to receive a free online second opinion. And um, the test before treat resources uh, in terms of making sure that all of the testing in terms of immunoglobulin gene rearrangement analysis and TP53 status is all taken care of before these patients start. And resources to help with the psychological, financial and practical stressors associated with having uh, and living with CLL. Terry is um, going to uh, come on and talk to us about his experience as a patient and advocate. Uh, So he's uh, had CLL for many years, so let's uh, now watch uh, Terry's story. My name is Terry Evans, and I was diagnosed with CLL 22 years ago in 2000. At the time of my diagnosis, there were really only two options for treatment. One was chemotherapy, and the other one was transplant. When I finally needed treatment in 2007, the treatment options really had not changed, so my first-line treatment happened to be FCR, or chemotherapy. This began my next 15 years of treatments. I've had over seven different treatment protocols, several of them more than once. The advancements in the treatment for CLL has been nothing short of amazing in the last 10 years where I was extremely limited in my choices for treatment, now patients have choices of several very viable options, depending on their age and their health status and the type of treatment they would be comfortable with, they can now choose from continuous treatment that keeps their disease stable or a fixed duration treatment. Both of these options have shown long-lasting remissions in the frontline setting. There are also now trials comparing various combinations of covalent BTK inhibitors, venetoclax and obinutuzumab that will hopefully give patients even longer lasting remissions. Patients should not neglect looking into clinical trials. I personally have been on three and I don't regret being on any of them. If you relapse on a BTK inhibitor, you can move to a BCL2 inhibitor and vice versa. If a covalent BTK inhibitor is used in the front line, there are generally two reasons to discontinue therapy. If the reason for stopping is because of disease progression, then moving to a non-covalent BTK inhibitor, which are currently in clinical trials, may be an option. Clearly, one of the biggest unmet needs for CLL patients is if you are double refractory to both a covalent BTK inhibitor and a BCL2 inhibitor. This is an area where non-covalent BTK inhibitors and possibly CAR-T may be an option for the patient. Also, these type of patients should not neglect looking into clinical trials. What has been invaluable to me in my journey with CLL are the resources that are available through the CLL Society. Whether a patient is interested in just learning more about CLL or joining one of the over 40 CLL-specific support groups, all that information is available on the website at clsociety.org. This website has sections for newly diagnosed patients, 
for the types of treatments that are available, what tests should be run and when they are necessary and unnecessary. I wish this resource were available to me when I was first diagnosed. Patients need to learn about what their treatment options are, if their status changes to needing treatment, or if they have relapsed on their current treatment. You should always be planning ahead, no matter what your treatment status is, because this can change over time. I want to leave you with some final thoughts. I am a 22-year CLL patient and survivor. I have some of the worst prognostic markers. Without these new treatments, I would not be alive today. Every time I needed a treatment, there was an option available to me. I have long ago realized that I may just be kicking the can down the road, but so far there's no end to that road in sight. Thank you. I, uh, I think he's done all our job for us. I think the four of us could probably leave now. But what we're going to try to do is to put some flesh onto some of those thoughts that Terry gave you there. Uh, so we're going to talk about achieving harmony in upfront care, um, customize the treatment choice. And what we're thinking about here, of course, is how can we identify among the various options we have available, which is the right patient for the right uh, type of trial. I'm delighted to be joined by Barbara. I'm just trying to remember how long I've known you. I've known Barbara since I think she was probably just a fellow, right? Indeed. <laughs> yeah, but uh, good to see her now, Professor. And uh, one of the wonderful things about this disease is that in the same way we have, get to follow our patients for many years, the four of us get to know each other very well over the years. So, Barbara, uh, over to you. Thank you very much, John, for the very kind introduction and welcome from me as well. And I would like to start my presentation, as already announced by John Gribben, with a kind of tumor board. So we have here Brian, which is a 75-year-old male patient, probably similar as uh, Terry's age. And this patient was progressive with a CLL already after one year undergoing watch and wait. He developed dry stage 3 with B symptoms, so had a clear indication for starting treatment. With respect to his comorbidities, he had a prostate carcinoma, which was irradiated in curative intention two years ago, and um, otherwise he had a mild hypertension, which is well controlled with an ACE inhibitor. Otherwise, he was physically very fit. His CLL risk profile showed CLL was an unmutated IGB-8 status. In fish, he had a trisomy 12, and most notably, he had in molecular genetics a TP53 mutation, which was a dominant clone in 75% of the CLL cells. So we have learned already 20 years ago that this um, very dominant clone and with an unfavorable prognosis should absolutely not receive chemimmunotherapy because chemimmunotherapy will eradicate only those cells not carrying TP50C mutation and then it will become even more dominant. And in the, in the past, those patients had really a, a disaster with respect, to, there was a disaster with respect to overall survival because they died very fast. So we've learned that this is, was in all countries across the world, this was the first patient population where targeted agents have been approved. So when we discuss now in the tumor board the treatment options with, um, about Brian, it's certainly about the different targeted treatment options. Um, I think we'll come later to that, in particular with John's presentation, the um, thoughts about continuous treatment versus time-limited treatment. And in my presentation, I would like to focus on the continuous treatment with covalent BTK inhibitors. 
Um, John mentioned already that there are three BTK inhibitors approved in frontline, so zanabotinib is also approved already in Europe and available um, as monotherapy. Acalabrotinib um, can be administered either as monotherapy in combination with obinituzumab CD20 antibody and abrotinib as monotherapy or in combination with rituximab or obinituzumab. Um, John Grippen has showed to you already that there is a number of studies and most of the phase three studies have definitely done, uh, been performed so far in abrutinib. We have two studies which were done in younger patients below the age of 70 or 75 years, so not quite the patient's age from our tumor board patient here. And in those trials, patients with TP53 aberration, which um, the patient Brian is carrying, have been excluded. So they are not so well fitting for a reference, but still I would shortly like to show you those data. On the other hand, for the elderly patients defined as um, age above 65 years, um, there are three phase M3 trials, which included um, patients um, either with this higher age or young and um, significant comorbidity, and here patients with a TP53 aberration were included. So looking at first the studies for the young patients, particularly the ECOG 1912 study, which was updated this year by Tate Chenefield, is remarkable because after median observation time, um, there is still a significant difference in the overall survival visible, um, showing also a, gr a, gr a very great difference in progression-free survival. Um, in contrast to that, when we look at um, the British study, the FLARE study, a similar study design comparing abrutinib plus rituximab versus FCR, but here um, patients up to the age of 75 years instead of 70 years with the ECOG study were allowed to enter the study. Peter Hillman has presented the data at last year's ASH meeting after median observation time of 52.7 months, and so a similar um, improved progression-free survival rate was observed in this study with abrutinib plus rituximab. You can see on the right-hand Kaplan-Meier curve that there is no difference in overall survival. So the possible reasons being discussed for that, that there were a few early deaths or a few deaths in the abrutinib arm among patients, some of them related to um, the clear cardiac events, some of them of unknown cause of death, which might lead us, might uh, show, or behind that might be um, sudden cardiac arrest, for example. And um, so the, the these, uh, lack of difference in overall survival shows that probably abrutinib is most efficacious in the young and fit patients with less comorbidity burden where you can smoothly administer the treatment and you don't have to interrupt, for example, because of atrial fibrillation, but I will come to that later. Um, so switching to, now to the elderly patients where in those studies um, patients with TP53 aberration have been included. The Resonate 2 study was the first study, phase 3 study done in frontline and leading to the approval of abrotinib, including patients above the age of 65 years. But please note the comparator arm was clombacil monotherapy. So the weakest treatment we had the last decades and at the time point the study was published, and this was not, not yet any more standard therapy. 
Um, so this study has a very long uh, follow-up time, and therefore we can see now that with more than seven years observation, there are still 50% of the patients receiving ibrutinib in remission. The study showed also difference in the overall survival, so crossover was allowed, but as said before, clarambosyl monotherapy is definitely not any treatment option um, seen for today. Another phase three study, the Illuminate study, compared ibrutinib in combination with obinutuzumab versus chemimmunotherapy with clombosil plus obinutuzumab. And here the update of this year with a median observation time of 75 years shows still an ongoing remarkable progression-free survival, but again, no difference here in the overall survival. And similar is true for the Alien study, Comparing here also ibrutinib versus ibrutinib plus rituximab, showing no benefit for rituximab versus bendamustine rituximab. And after 55 months follow-up, um, still more than 60% of the patients are in, the remi in remission and again no difference in overall survival. Um, so with that, switching to the other BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib has been approved in frontline based on the ELEVATE-TN study, comparing acalabrutinib monotherapy versus the combination with obinutuzumab and again versus chemimmunotherapy with clombosil plus obinutuzumab. And the um, updated data which have been shown at this year's EHA meeting um, show not only that both arms with acalabrutinib are superior to the chemimmunotherapy, the brown, the brown curve on the top is the combination with the CD20 antibody, and um, the difference here was statistically um, significant, but um, here, but the study was not powered for showing here difference between the addition of CD20 antibody or not to acalabrutinib. But, but um, now with the update presented at EHA, it's notable that there is also now a statistically significant difference in the overall survival, at least for acalabrutinib plus obinutuzumab versus chemimmunotherapy. And of course, based on those data, maybe we have time to discuss that later on. It's um, questionable, should we now add obinutuzumab to all patients receiving acalabrutinib in frontline? Um, and finally, with respect to the third BTK inhibitor, Zanobotinib, um, already approved by the EMA, was tested in the Sequoia study, again in elderly patients, but here patients with TP53 operation were excluded because there was a separate cohort for those patients. I will show you the data later on for the cohort too. And here, Zanobotinib monotherapy versus combination Benamastin plus Rituximab um, was compared. And the data are shown here. This is um, the youngest phase three trial, so median observation time is significantly shorter than in all other phase three trials I've shown to you, but at 24 months, um, Zanobrutinib in the Zanobrutinib arm, 86%, whereas 70% with BR are still in remission and alive. With that, I would like to focus now a little bit more on the problem our patient has, the TP53 aberration. So what type of data do we have for those um, patients? And um, here we have from the Illuminate and the Alliance study, which allowed inclusion of those high-risk patients. On um, the left-hand side, you see only those patients being treated with ibrutinib plus, plus obinutuzumab in the Illuminate study. And with purple, you see here those patients with TP53 operation, though there is no major difference between both arms. And similarly to that, from the Alien study here on the right-hand side, 
Here in blue are both ibrotinib arms with or without rituximab taken together. Again, there is no major difference here between um, those two arms. Um, with respect to acalabrutinib, um, this may be with the sixth curve a little bit more confusing. So the dotted lines are those patients without TP53 operation. You, so you see in green, um, with or without TP53 operation, there was no difference at all with acalabrutinib monotherapy. There is a difference for the brown curves with acala plus obinituzumab. But please note that the reason why there is a difference is that those patients without TP53 operation do even better than those um, with TP53 operation, which are in a exactly or in the same range as those patients receiving acalabrotinib monotherapy. So the data show that um, also with acalabrotinib, um, the prognosis is not inferior when patients carry TP53 operation. And uh, finally, this is um, the cohort two of the Sequoia study. So 101 patients who were not randomized and all of them received zanoprotinib. Um, here, only patients with a deletion 17P and not with a TP53 mutation were included. And um, the update also shown at last year's ESH meeting after a median observation time of 30 months shows still an excellent curve here for patients with 17P deletion. So I need to take a moment to comment that because there was a lot of discussion on that curve already in the publication, um, which was published in Hematologica 2021, because in that study, FISH was done for screening in patients, and more than 50% of the patients had um, only in less than 20% of the CLL cells a deletion 17P. So by FISH, in most of the trials, a cutoff for um, naming that as a significant proportion of 17P deletion is at 20%. Therefore, half of the patients included here where it would have been excluded in other studies for having a significant proportion of 17P deletion. Um, Sub-analysis, at least in the um, full published paper, showed that there was no difference with respect to the cutoff and the prognosis for PFS, but I think still, based on that, um, maybe these data have to be interpreted with um, a little bit cautious. When we consider, and John will talk about that later, it continues versus time-limited therapy, and there is um, the, as mentioned before, the um, Illuminate study, and on the other hand, um, this is the CL14 study, which compared venetoclax obinituzumab versus clombosil obinituzumab, and the blue lines are patients receiving venetoclax obinituzumab, and you see here with the time-limited treatment, which is not so surprising because we know that there are residual clones with CLL carrying the TP53 operation, which will um, regrow faster once you stop treatment in those patients. With respect to that, it seems that clearly BTK inhibitors are a better treatment options if you want to do a cross-trial comparison. However, of course, with the time-limited treatment in general, there is also the option for high-risk patients to, to repeat the treatment. And therefore, the final question, what is best for patients' overall survival carrying these high-risk feature aberrations is still open. Um, finally, the other aspect we have to consider in treating those patients are, of course, the adverse events with BTK inhibitors. And there is a difference between the three covalent BTK inhibitors due to their different selectivity. Um, abrutinib is a drug which is, um, has less, selecti less selectivity than particularly acalabrutinib, but also xanabrutinib. 
And um, you can see the particular, for, for example, for the EGFR, where the IC50 with albutinib is, while it's extremely high with acalabrutinib or also higher with zanabrutinib, and therefore skin reactions are probably less uh, frequently with, uh, with that substance. Um, when we look at the AE profiles, again, across the clinical studies, and this is somehow not a really fair comparison because, of course, we have completely different mean observation times, and with a continuous treatment, it's clear that longer observation time automatically leads to a higher incidence rate of adverse events. Um, but still, um, when we look at here the rate of hypertension and the ELEVATE study is with respect to observation time between the RESONATE 2 and the ELEAN study, we see there is a significantly lower rate for acalabrutinib in comparison to ibrutinib, and both drugs, zanabrutinib and acalabrutinib, result in lower rates of atrial fibrillation. Um, while we, I think we still have to look at data on infections if um, there is still a slightly higher rate of severe infections with acalabrutinib or zanabrutinib with longer follow-up. We have two trials with head-to-head -head comparison, um, which allow really um, more fair and balanced comparison. And um, the, we have also here in this ASH meeting, we will see a poster from Anthony Matters Group um, on 2,500 patients who were looked at in a retrospective data analysis, and um, those patients with a median observation time of 15.9 months received, um, not in, within a clinical study, in clinical practice, acalabrutinib or ibrutinib. And uh, Lindsay Rucker will show, show here on her poster that um, the time to treatment discontinuation with acalabrutinib is significantly shorter than with ibrutinib. And in addition to that, there was a weighting performed, in, uh, um, and even with that, there was still a difference um, with respect to those two treatment options. The real head-to-head -head comparison which has been performed was in the Elevate RR study, um, treating patients in relap with relapsed CLL and carrying higher risk factors as unmutated IGVH status or deletion 11Q or 17P deletion showed no significant difference in the progression-free survival and um, very similar overall survival rates. And so in tendency, it was a little bit better with acalabrutinib. With respect to the side effects, um, the rate um, of developing atrial fibrillation over time was lower with acalabrutinib and significantly lower um, for hypertension, here again was blue, which seems also to not in increase anymore as soon as patients are for some years on treatment. Um, it could be that there is really a plateau with respect to the development of hypertension. Um, there is another interesting poster um, with respect to this head-to-head -head comparison presented by John Seymour from Melbourne, and um, they, uh, they looked at in the Elevate RR study not only the pure incidence of adverse events, but also the um, so-called um, AE burden, which is not only defined by the incidence and severity, but also by the duration, which I think from a patient's standpoint makes completely sense, because even low-grade, lower-grade adverse events, when they're consistently bothering the patient, they might rather lead to a um, treatment interruption than, for example, severe neutropenia, which does not, um, not necessarily um, cause any harm on the patient. And interestingly, they show here on the patient, or they confirm that atrial flutter, hypertension, and hemorrhage um, are signif have significantly higher um, AE burden with albutinib, but also 
On the other hand, diarrhea um, and headache are more prominent with um, respect to acalabrutinib. So if you're more interested in these data, please visit the post on Sunday. And then finally, um, we will hear that on Tuesday morning, um, the Alpine study, which is um, also a head-to-head -head comparison between ibrutinib and zanobrutinib, um, being performed in relapse CLL. The median number of prior therapies in the study was one, and the median age of patients was 68 years. And the study was already presented a year ago, showing um, the primary endpoint, which was overall response rate, which was better with zanobrutinib and then with abrutinib. And now with an updated analysis, um, there was uh, in a first step done a non-inferiority analysis for zanobrutinib versus ibrutinib. And since this was positive, a superiority testing was done, and these are the data. And you can see that this is the first study showing now that uh, one BTK inhibitor is better than another BTK inhibitor with respect to progression-free survival. Um, in the abstract, there is no difference in the overall survival described. And um, I'm just telling you already that um, but, uh, the picture is also, um, the Kaplan-Meyerkov is also in the abstract. Particularly patients with a TP53 operation seem to benefit because the difference between zanobrotinib and ibrotinib is even larger in, in the subgroup of patients with TP53 operation. Um, this has already been shown at um, um, the last last year um, with um, with zanobrutinib. There's a lower rate of atrial flutter, and when we look at um, other side effects in this head-to-head -head comparison, we see this is the most prominent difference. Mainly, this lower rate of atrial flutter is related to a lower rate in CTC grade one and two, and not so much to the severe atrial flutter events, and however, all other side effects are quite well balanced. More severe neutropenia does not result into higher rates of infection. The only other adverse event which stands out a little bit but shows so far no statistical difference is the rate of secondary neoplasia, and um, for that we certainly need a longer observation time. So finally, coming back um, to um, the patient, and um, I would like to discuss that with my colleagues. Um, with respect to the best treatment option, um, continuous BTKI therapy versus venetoclax fixed duration. And if we choose a BTKI, what uh, evidence do we have now from the data I have shown to you? Um, what would you tell your patients? And how should the TP50C mutation and particularly also the comorbidity, the mild hypertension, inform the discussion on the treatment. And with that, I would like to ask you, John, first, and maybe to the first point for discussion, continuous versus fixed duration, what would be your consideration for the patient? I think for the high-risk patients, I'm looking to use a continuous therapy. I, um, the question of combinations we'll come back to talk about later. Um, but uh, I would use a BTK inhibitor versus a venetoclax combination, combination for this particular patient here on the basis of the 17P deletion, on the basis of the data we've got from the clinical trials showing better progression-free survival for that group of patients. Take it as a given, of course, that we don't have those direct comparisons head-to-head -head between those two, but um, kind of doing what we're always taught not to do, comparing the outcome in one trial versus another, I think the outcome looks better for a continuous BTK inhibitor for these high-risk patients. 
thank you. Maybe uh, I ask then, Anthony, you, um, with respect to the BTK inhibitor, um, considering these covalent binding BTK inhibitors, what would you consider, what would you tell your patient with respect to the choice? Well, it's going to be a longer and longer conversation um, as we have more and more choices. I think in this particular case, the conversation has two facets. One is the discussion of the AE profiles of the individual agents with respect to this particular patient and the fact that they have hypertension, um, which, you know, of all of them, it seems, again, uh, as John advised not to do, the cross-trial comparison, that ACAL is probably the best. Uh, Zanu and Ibrutinib seem to be equal in that regard. But then the second question is, which of these agents have the best data to support use in a 17P-deleted patient? And that's a harder question to answer because most of the ibrutinib-based data are small subsets added together from several trials. ACALA, there's just a snippet of patients from phase one and from um, Elevate TN. And then Zanu has this 109 patients prospective frontline trial, but then you pointed out that there was some question about the cut point and whether they're Dell 17P. And so I think it largely boils down to all are equal from the perspective in my mind of efficacy, but then it's weighing the AEs and what's going to cause the least amount of harm for an individual patient. So for this patient who has hypertension, I'm saying it's mild, but mild always gets moderate regardless of which BTKI, probably would start a CALA for this patient. And would you add obinutuzumab or not? I would not, um, just because, and also related to John's comment, I mean, we're making these massive decisions for people based on these tiny subsets, even the Dell17P Van Oben um, data is based on 25 patients, AO versus A Dell17P subset, you're talking about a small number of patients, but those curves are overlapping, and so I probably would not take the risk and add the Oben. Nitin, you are nodding, so you would also not add, not add obinutuzumab to acalabrutinib? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, as, as uh, Anthony mentioned, uh, I think the same, same argument, right? I mean, the, I mean, adding obinutuzumab adds to the cost, malosuppression, and at least in the Elevate uh, TN study, the PFS for the, you know, uh, 17P group is not different. So it's like both had, I think, five years, 71%. So um, with the caveat of subset analysis, right? So I think... Unless there is a more definitive data, you know, in my practice, I, if I'm using a calabrutinib, which I would also use for this patient, after, you know, we manage the hypertension appropriately, uh, I would just use a cala single agent. Uh, in case the patient would not have TP50C mutation, would you then consider adding obinutuzumab? Um, again, I mean, I think so then the argument becomes whether you, how much benefit that is a 12 percentage point PFS difference at five years, right, 84 percent for the acala obin. Um, uh, 72%, I believe, for the ACALA alone. Um, so I think it's a discussion with the patient. I think in my practice, I have not been using it, though there is, I mean, you can certainly, there is a, you know, this randomized study, you can use it. But I, again, I worry about, if I'm going to use obinutuzumab, and if, let's suppose this patient was not L17P, then I think start thinking about the time-limited approach with Venji. If I'm going to use obinutuzumab, infusion reactions, myelosuppression, maybe maybe better to use a time-limited approach. So in my practice, I have not used it, but at the same time, as I said, it's, if, you want, if someone wants to use it, certainly, you know, dynamized data supports that. Thank you very much. So um, I would uh, close and uh, finish here with the decision of the tumor board. So continuous BTKI 
therapy is supported um, by a lot of data and uh, for robust treatment option and treatment naive um, CLL patients and also including patients with high risk um, features as the lesion 17 or TP50C mutation, um, the more selective BTK inhibitors, um, acalabrutinib, we have there already very robust, robust data with long follow-up, not so long follow-up from the Sequoia study so far um, for zanobrutinib, but now also the data from the Alpine study. Um, they are better tolerated with respect to AEs, particularly acalabrutinib also with respect to hypertension, as our pa patient had, and um, therefore um, this is, these two BTK inhibitors, in particular acalabrutinib, are certainly very useful options for those patients um, with cardiac comorbidities. And with that, I would like to close with the take-home messages um, that we have many phase three trials in, on BTK inhibitors. They show high efficacy, and particularly also um, in patients with, in the past, a really poor prognosis, and that we should consider the comorbidity in those patients and talk to them about the possible incidence of the cardiac comorbidities, even with the more selective BTK inhibitors. And this is probably a key point. I think we will discuss that on Tuesday morning, also with the Alpine study in the late-breaking session, that probably um, the fact that patients stay on the treatment, don't interrupt the treatment, is probably a key for an effective treatment, particularly in high-risk CLL. Thank you very much. And with that, I would like to hand over back to John. Thank you. What we're going to do now is move on to thinking about the role of novel combination strategies. Um, so, again, we're going to start with a kind of tumour board question we'll come back to. So, Sarah's a 56-year-old woman with symptomatic CLL. She's got splenomegaly. She's got good performance status. Let's think of two scenarios. One where um, she has a creatinine clearance of 53, has no TP53 um, uh, uh, abnormality in terms of a deletion or a mutation, but does have unmutated immunoglobulin genes, and um, let's um, think of a second scenario of pretty similar circumstances, but this time she's got bulky lymphadenopathy. And would that in any way impact how we would think about managing this patient? So our modern goals, as you've heard uh, here, are we've got two approaches we can think of. One of continuous therapy, where our goal of therapy, as Barbara's been alluding to here, has, is disease control prolonging the progression-free survival where possible to prolonging the overall survival from what we have from the clinical trial data uh, that Barbara presented to you. And it's independent from response to MRD. And that was one of the questions that a patient in the audience asked about. Should they be monitoring their MRD with uh, BTK inhibitors? It's certainly not my practice. Do any of you ever monitor MRD? In any, I mean, you're not going to be MRD negative with a BTK inhibitor alone. So I don't yeah. monitor these patients. Alternatively, we have fixed duration therapies. We've now got venetoclax plus abinutuzumab, or we've got, of course, venetoclax plus abrutinib, where really our goal is uh, disease eradication, at least as measured by having undetectable MRD. If it was disease eradication in its truest form, we'd be talking about cure, and unfortunately, we're not there yet. And again, we're looking at prolongation of progression-free survival and, of course, increasingly thinking about does that impact on overall survival compared to other types of therapies. 
I feel a bit embarrassed standing beside Barbara talking about the CLL14 study. This is, of course, the German CLL study group. This is the study that led to the approval in the frontline setting of venetoclax plus abinutuzumab. The CLL14 study took patients with previously untreated CLL who had coexisting medical conditions as manifest by either a high SEER score or uh, impaired creatinine clearance and randomised those patients to receive venetoclax uh, with um, the abinutuzumab starting it off, then the ramp-up venetoclax. I will say it is a, quite a burden for our patients to come in what, eight weeks in a row. Uh, it's eight weekly visits to ramp up the fully going through your abinutuzumab followed by your ramp-up. So it's, it's quite, a, quite a burden for patients to get onto this. Uh, randomized to clarambucil, um, given a little bit differently than how the German CLL study group have delivered clarambucil alone, but to show a kind of a degree of equivalence here, giving 12 months of clarambucil, and of course both arms got six months of uh, clarambucil. We've seen this data, of course, many times before. The primary endpoint was investigator-assessed progression-free survival, and the secondary endpoints are shown here, and importantly among those was, of course, MRD negativity itself. We've seen now uh, from, um, uh, from Omar the, the data on the five-year follow-up presented at, um, at uh, EHA earlier this year. And after five years of uh, after randomization, the estimated progression-free survival uh, was uh, 62% for the uh, venetoclax abinutuzumab versus uh, 27% for clamacilinutuzumab. So as Barbara already alluded to in her presentation about looking at these randomized trials, clear superiority of the novel agent over chemoimmunotherapy in this setting. In terms of looking to what we're trying to do with a fixed-duration therapy, that is, eradicate MRD so that we can stop the therapy, uh, again, the study was successful. Here are the MRD negativity rates, uh, looking at peripheral blood and bone marrow. And increasingly, when you're looking at these studies, you'll be aware that there are different ways of looking at MRD, either by flow or by next-generation sequencing or by PCR. And it's important you look carefully at those papers as to how the MRD was assessed because the threshold for MRD eradication is different in many of these studies. But here, looking at ASO-PCR, you see high rates of um, MRD negativity, 76% for VENG in peripheral blood and 57% in bone marrow. And does that matter? Well, yes, it does, because those patients who achieve MRD eradication, independent of the therapy, have a very different outcome. And you'll see here uh, the differences in outcome by, by those patients who receive either therapy who are undetectable, who have low levels of uh, um, MRD or have higher levels of MRD at the end of therapy, giving very different um, uh, uh, progression-free survival outcomes demonstrating that when we're talking about fixed duration, this endpoint of eradicating MRD becomes very important. There are studies which are looking at this, a German CLL study group again, um, looking at testing uh, venetoclax platforms versus continuous therapy. We alluded to the fact we haven't yet got direct head-to-head -head comparisons, but of course this will come from the more mature data we see emerging from CLL17. This takes patients with previously untreated CLL, including fit and fit patients, and, include, uh, and looking at patients uh, um, with 17P deletions or mutations, looking at uh, ibrutinib until intolerance or progression disease, venetoclaxib and atuzumab, 
or venetoclax plus ibrutinib. So we're going to have a head-to-head comparison data available. Now, the clinical rationale for combining our two best agents together is the preclinical data suggesting synergistic activity of these two classes of agents to different, uh, uh, together. The kind of evidence that we have in terms of differential, what we call compartment effects, so venetoclax appears more effective in clearing the bone marrow, uh, the BTK inhibitor is very effective in clearing the lymph nodes. They have non-overlapping toxicity profiles, and they reduce the likelihood of resistance combination. So if you're, if you're giving continuous therapy or even giving venetoclax for fixed duration, one of the things we become concerned about is continuous pressure with that agent will develop the emergence of resistance against one of those agents. If you use the two agents together, you're potentially overcoming that particular resistance. And, of course, there is the potential for highly effective time-limited therapy. And I'll come through various clinical trial designs which are looking at the question of whether this really is a fixed-duration therapy for all patients or whether we can identify subgroups who may need a slightly different approach. Now, one such study which looks at this combination is the CAPTIVATE trial. And the CAPTIVATE trial has different arms of using ibrutinib plus uh, venetoclax. This is the data from the so-called fixed-duration arm. This looks uh, at the activity against uh, uh, treatment-naive CLL. And what you'll see here is um, very high uh, overall response rates, high levels of um, being able to see this efficacy in the presence or absence of 17p deletions. And what you'll see here also is really pretty outstanding. I mean, Barbara, we could only have dreamed of these progression-free survival curves when we were thinking about CLL in the old days um, uh, in terms of looking at the outcome. And again, of course, at every meeting we come to, we're looking for updates on the longer-term follow-up of this group of patients. Again, you'll see no difference in outcome between those patients who do or do not have uh, um, TP53 abnormalities. Also within the CAPTIVATE trial, there's um, another arm, the uh, MRD cohort. In this arm, the patients are treated differently based upon whether or not they have or do not have undetectable MRD at the end of therapy. Those patients who are confirmed to be uh, MRD negative are then randomly assigned to either continue therapy with placebo, that is really to stop, or to continue with uh, ibrutinib. And the question here is, does continuous BTK therapy add to the efficacy we see with uh, fixation? And what you'll see here is we're seeing at the moment no difference in the outcome between these two arms. Again, we'll see updates on that here. At this meeting, we'll see additional years of, an additional year of follow-up with patients with, unconfirmed, um, uh, uh, with, with confirmed undetectable MRD using this. The four-year overall survival rates are greater than 98%. The durability um, uh, of the uh, undetectable MRD and the three-year regression uh, disease-free survivals uh, rate of 85% without ongoing t- treatment are encouraging and potentially support uh, treatment-free remissions. And again, we'll come back uh, and we'll see this data in more detail tomorrow uh, to see how it's updated from what's in the abstract to tell us what additional information this gives us about these groups of patients. Uh, The approval within Europe uh, for this combination was on the basis of the GLOW trial. This takes an elderly patient population who are more unfit and looked again at the same combination 
of the uh, ibrutinib plus venetoclax, the, the three-month run-in of ibrutinib, then the ramp-up of venetoclax, and then continue for one-year fixed duration. The, uh, this was uh, randomized compared to chlorambucil uh, abinutuzumab. Uh, I think this, we may be getting to the end of the era where we'll see any arms having chemoimmunotherapy in our randomized trials anymore. But what you'll see here again is the novel, novel combination uh, clearly outperformed the chemoimmunotherapy. That large drop, of course, uh, applies to when there were scans performed within the study uh, looking for uh, progression at that time. This, as I've mentioned, has led to the EMA approval for this combination, and certainly I'm now able to use this combination and am offering it to many patients. And I think among the four of us, we'll be discussing who we think might be the suitable patients for this particular combination. Here's the data. We'll see Carson Neiman's going to present this data uh, on Saturday also in the CLL session, looking at these very high rates of undetectable MRD against the immunoglobulin subgroups, whether they're mutated or unmutated. We see very high rates of MRD eradication. And again, uh, you're looking here at different depths of ability to eradicate MRD based upon different methodologies where the threshold for MRD detection goes down to lower and lower thresholds. And again, what you see here is the very high rates that we see uh, of doing this. And what happens to these patients as we follow them over time? I think from CLL14, we've seen that the undetectable MRD does tend to fall off over time. And so far, at least with the follow-up we've had with GLOW, we're not seeing that. But of course, we didn't see that in CLL14 for a while either. So I think we'll need longer follow-up. I'm interested to see again whether Karsten updates this data uh, tomorrow in the presentation uh, compared to what was in the abstract. So in, times, in terms of looking at the safety of these, with GLOW, we saw similar rates of grade three adverse events for this combination. We have to remember, of course, that chlorambucil-abinutuzumab uh, was considered our safest regimen. This was the regimen designed for the elderly patient population. The SAEs were, um, uh, that were occurring in greater than 5% of uh, patients with I plus V versus chlorambucil included infections, which is something we'll need to look at very carefully, and atrial fibrillation, a side effect that might be expected to occur with uh, the use of a BTK inhibitor. And it'll be interesting to see what happens to the rates of atrial fibrillation once you're off ibrutinib in many of these studies. With Captivate, where we're talking about a younger patient population, uh, the most common adverse events were neutropenia and hypertension, Again, side effects you might expect to see in this uh, patient population with these agents. And AEs that led to dose reductions of ibrutinib were quite rare, only occurring in, in about 6% of uh, patients. Venetoclax in 11%, and both ibrutinib uh, versus venetoclax in 6% in of patients. I have to tell you, when I got involved in doing and uh, enrolling patients in these combinations, I thought patients would struggle to take this number of tablets together, but I've been really quite impressed by the ability of patients to manage to take these combinations um, uh, together. And what we see is the combinations appear to be highly effective. But safety might be a consideration, and Barbara alluded to this as well, that the age of the patient uh, and certainly their comorbidities may influence what, uh, what particular therapies that you uh, think about. And again, maybe if we have time, we'll come back and discuss that among ourselves. 
The early evidence of looking at the way in which we use I plus V in combination, um, one of the advantages of starting with ibrutinib is that we don't see that risk of tumor lysis syndrome that we see when we start with venetoclax. And in the CAPTIVATE trial, if we look and assess what is the, the, the tumor lysis uh, syndrome risk as described in the SMPC for venetoclax, you'll see that many of these patients were considered quite high risk uh, going into it, but when you do the, the three-month run-in with ibrutinib, you debulk those patients so that it's safer or should be safer to then introduce venetoclax. Now, it's not yet safe enough to say that you just get straight in with a 400 milligram dose. Very important that you dose escalate. I think, Nitin, you've done clinical trials of looking at accelerated, but that's something you're really only recommending under clinical trial conditions and under very close observation for particular patients. We are still advocating the use of dose escalation even in those patients. I have to say, we rarely see any evidence of even any biochemical TLS when we're using this combination together. So three cycles of single-agent ibrutinib uh, reduced the tumor, li uh, tumor lysis risk category in 90% of patients, uh, um, and only 2% remained in high-risk category before initiation of that venetoclax ramp-up, leading to an increased safety profile in terms of then introducing the venetoclax. There are other combinations, of course, which we look at. This is the MAGIC phase three trial, which will test ibrutinib and venetoclax combination in patients with CLL. Quite a complicated uh, design here in terms of, again, not just fixed duration, but looking at an MRD-driven endpoint. And you'll see that that AV arm, those who have undetectable MRD at that 14-month uh, time point, so that is um, 12 months of the combination, will stop the therapy, and those who are still positive will continue AV. And in the uh, venetoclax uh, obinutuzumab arm, uh, again, MRD-driven endpoint where the, uh, the therapy then continues. I think a lot of people would question whether or not we're going to continue to be able to really eradicate MRD by continuing the same therapy for a longer period of time. Perhaps at that 14-month time point, patients already declared themselves. But these sorts of studies will help us answer those questions. And of course, in, uh, Barbara already introduced the Sequoia trial to you, but there are arms here that are looking at uh, arm D of Sequoia, looking at uh, Zanabrutinib in combination with venetoclax in high-risk patients. Again, a relatively uh, small cohort of patients, but 14 of these patients now have uh, been treated with that uh, combination therapy for greater than 12 months. And again, we see a very high rates of overall response in that setting. And there are many other trials which are investigating newer combinations, time-limited uh, options, uh, and those are just kind of, uh, kind of summarized for you here in this rather busy slide, but it's just a clearly a huge area of research that we have right now looking to see whether we can determine in many of these trials whether we can identify subgroups of patients who are going to do better or worse with individual arms within these. And of course, the CLL13 trial is one such trial looking at and investigating many of these different combinations. Well, that's the doublets. So what about triplets? Um, in myeloma, we've gone from triplets to quadruplets, but we're not quite there yet in CLL, but we are exploring the potential of, of triplet therapy. 
Barbara's already alluded to the kind of sometimes conflicting data on the role of anti-CD20 combinations in terms of its addition to BTK inhibitors. I think there's very clear evidence of good activity of an anti-CD20 when we're using it in combination with venetoclax. So what happens when we look at triplet therapy? Uh, here's the CLL2-GIV trial. So this is, of course, um, abinutuzumab, brutin and venetoclax. This is for high-risk patients with CLL. It's a time-limited approach using this combination, followed by, because this is high-risk patient population, and you heard us discuss before that most of us believe that these patients may benefit from more continuous therapy, this group of patients in this trial then follow with maintenance rituximab. We'll see what the German CLL study group does when the long-term follow-up comes out from some of the captivate arms as to whether or not we consider that to be the case or whether or not this is something that might be needed for this high-risk patient population. We've seen data presented on 41 patients, all of whom had uh, TP53 abnormalities in terms of either deletion 17P uh, deletion or TP53 mutations. And you'll see here 58.5% uh, 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 were in CR by cycle 15. And here are the rates of undetectable MRD. Why should you be MRD negative but not in CR? That's for those group of patients who still have small nodes, uh, the significance of which we still don't fully understand as we don't really go in and re-biopsy those nodes to find out if they're still there. And here is the data uh, available to us in terms of looking at the progression-free and overall survival. We've also seen data looking at the AVO combination. This is a calibration of venetoclax and uh, obinutuzumab in treatment-naive CLL. Uh, again, at this meeting, we'll see an update in the uh, uh, meeting tomorrow. Um, so here are 68 patients enrolled in a phase two study looking at this combination. 60% of these patients had um, abnormalities in TP53. 24% had complex karyotypes, something we haven't kind of discussed among ourselves yet, but we hopefully might have some time to talk about that later. Um, and the mass majority of these patients, as you might expect in higher risk patients, being unmutated. The take homes from this study is that this is a highly active and well tolerated triplet. Uh, the bone marrow undetectable MRD rates are 83% in the TP53 aberrant patients after 15 months of treatment. Again, a kind of treatment outcome we could only have dreamed about in 17 P-deleted patients a few years ago. The responses appear durable with 93% progression-free survival in, at a median follow-up of nearly three years. And um, the low rates of cardiac and infection complications were observed. Again, in keeping with the data that Barbara suggested to you that these uh, second-generation covalent BTK inhibitors may have a superior safety profile. And for completeness sake, again, we've also seen data on the Bovin combination. That's Zanabrutinib, Venetoclax, and Benetuzumab. The, the B, of course, relating to its previous BGB um, nomenclature. Highly effective with uh, robust MRD rates. And, of course, this now published, and you can look at this in more detail. 89% of the patients have achieved undetectable MRD in peripheral blood and bone marrow and stopped therapy. And again, a median of 10 months, uh, eight, using eight months of that triplet. So again, we need longer follow-up on these groups of patients to see what happens after we take them off these therapies. So in terms of looking back at our patients, um, so our first scenario here, we have um, 
are 55-year-old women, symptomatic CLL, creatinine clearance of 53, no TP53 abnormality, unmutated immunoglobulin genes. Do you use here time-limited therapy or continuous uh, BTK inhibitors? What are your goals of therapy? Uh, Nitin, why don't I start on this one with uh, your comments on that one? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, uh, so this is a young, young woman. Um, it looks like this is a patient with non-bulky disease, um, has some, you know, renal dysfunction, but the creatinine, I mean, clearance is still above 50, you know, 50 milliliters per minute, um, uh, and unmutated V gene. So I think for this particular patient, I mean, in my practice, I would, I would offer both the therapies, like a time-limited therapy with Venji for one year, um, as well as uh, continuous BTK inhibitor therapy, um, in that setting, you know, generally it's the, because of the side effect profile, generally it's acalabrutinib these days. So I think I, I discussed the acala versus Wenji option with the patient. Um, I think generally for younger patients, they obviously after discussion with them, most of the time they want time-limited approach. They don't want to be in a pill for, for a long time. So I think, uh, to me, I think Wenji would be an appropriate approach, but at the same time, uh, I think if a patient want to be on a continuous daily treatment because logistically it's easier, at least early on, uh, that's perfectly a fine option as well. So I think both the options would be correct. Anthony, any, any different views? I don't have anything to add to what Nin mm -hmm. said. I, I think it's both are appropriate and both would be discussed. I don't feel strongly either is a correct choice, but neither would be an in incorrect choice, I feel. Sure. Barbara, any thoughts on this and any uh, thinking about in the setting of COVID still being around, was that impact on your use of uh, anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody versus Ibrutinib venetoclax um, combination, or you think the data is just too immature for us to know? Um, yeah, so with respect to the CD20 antibody, I would not be afraid of COVID. I mean, we have, um, once your patient um, is vaccinated, um, we have clear data that mobility is really low, and we have antiviral drugs, and we have um, other um, antibodies, as Evo shared. So um, I think we can, we can manage that. Um, of course, um, if the patient would be afraid of the CD20 antibody, the combination venetoclax plus albutinib, particularly with the lymphadenopathy in the second scenario um, and the decreased renal function would be of high interest. Um, for me personally, I'm still hesitating to use this option broadly in patients. Um, I don't know how you're doing that because I would like to see more data on relapse treatment when we use already the most potent age um, groups of medication in frontline as a combination. Yeah, I think we're going to come back to that in your presentations later on. The question of a concern, of course, of using your two best agents together is what do you do um, later? Of course, well, one such approach is you can go back to either agent alone or you can go back to the combination. But there is still some concern out there that by using your best two agents together, um, where until we get the non-covalent agents licensed and approved, where we've got options for them, perhaps. Uh, I don't know why I'm looking at you for particular reasons. Um, so, um, again, no kind of right or wrong answer here. So, um, I, I think what you're hearing is that a time-limited option would be a good approach uh, for this, um, this patient, but you've also heard that continuous BTK inhibitor therapy could be considered. I guess what we've got nowadays, again, with CLL, is you've got that time during watch and wait as these patients approach the time for need for treatment that you're able to have very long and detailed conversations 
leading up to. So you're not springing a surprise on them that this is the therapy we're going to give. And I think what you're also hearing from us is that I'm very glad to report that in 2022, uh, the patient's choice in all of this becomes a very important component in how we kind of think and approach this type of a question. In the casing of the having lymphadenopathy, um, the, um, the time-limited BTK um, uh, combination, uh, again, could be a reasonable choice. And here, the lead-in of the brutinib can reduce that risk of severe tumor lysis syndrome. But I, I think we've all pretty much learned how to handle uh, venetoclax. And certainly, I think it's true to say that it requires careful handling. But once you're experienced in handling and knowing how to handle this combination, I, I think bulk itself would not, in my mind, be a contraindication to using VenG anymore. I think we're very uh, kind of able to, to manage this, but we'll see. The data from um, FLAIR, of course, did suggest that the higher risk patients, and here this patient had unmutated genes, perhaps did favour the use of the Brutinib Plus Venetoclax. But I take your point, Barbara, that the follow-up's still very short. But that just intrigues me in terms of thinking, if this patient had been mutated, I'd have no hesitation in giving VenG. But the unmutated means that I would certainly have a discussion with her about using the Venetoclax abinutuzumab combination. My take-home thoughts on this combination platform are that novel combination therapies involving BTK inhibitors do allow for uh, fixed duration therapy. And of course, the combination here meaning, including, of course, venetoclax in combination with abinutuzumab. When we're using a BCL2 inhibitor in combination, our goal of therapy is MRD eradication. Uh, emerging clinical trial data may help us to identify what to do if a patient remains MRD positive at the end of treatment. I've shown you a whole variety of clinical trials that are asking the question whether we should continue either doublets or triplets or whether we should continue one of those agents with further follow-up. And the results of all of those trials when taken together will give us some clues as to what potentially we should do. I think we await the full results of, of randomized trials comparing these different combinations of doublets or triplets. And uh, I think it's intriguing to be thinking about triplets, but my own view at the moment is I'm still awaiting more data to come out and waiting for further follow-up before I'm adopting the triplet combinations outside the setting of clinical trials. Uh, and the results to date do suggest that disease characteristics can help identify optimal operation for patients. And certainly, my goal is before I retire, be able to really have a much better handle on telling a patient, based upon your characteristics, this is the combination I think is the best one for you. That's where the clinical trials are trying to address it for us yet. We're not quite there, but I think we're getting closer and closer all the time. So again, before we move on, remember the CLL Society has resources for your patients on prognosis, treatment selection, access to trials, and the spectrum of modern therapy. Again, just to remind you, you've seen this in a video and I've already alluded to before, you've got these patient education toolkits. If you're not yourself quite comfortable yet in terms of talking about all the information or more likely you don't have time in your busy offices to be able to spend quite as much time as you'd like to, you can refer your patients on to these patient education toolkits which allow them to understand better the impact of adverse prognostic features on the treatment options that are available to them. 
Um, the education toolkit also allows a brief overview of the treatments we've been talking about here today. They've got easy to understand definitions of modern cl drug classes for the patients. And again, the, uh, the website is here. And the Before You Treat campaign is really driven at this whole importance. You've heard us talk a lot about the mutational status of the immunoglobulin genes, the TP53, and certainly I wouldn't consider treating a patient nowadays without knowing the immunoglobulin mutational status and the TP53 status of my patients before I'm offering the, what I consider to be the optimal treatment for them. And this campaign is really kind of driven at uh, looking at this. And we know very well that although... Uh, those of us who purport to be CLL experts are really wedded to this idea. We know very well that not all patients are still getting access uh, to this. And of course, there are very simple and straightforward uh, uh, kind of guidances there, the test before you treat uh, approaches that you can think about. And then it also has information to help patients make sense of clinical trials in terms of how to understand the most getting out of uh, clinicaltrials.gov. <laughs> Certainly for those of us who use it a lot, it can be quite hard to, to the, the sheer number of trials out there make it difficult to do. A, a nice, easy to follow way in which you can help make sense of clinicaltrial.gov's within these CLL Society webpages. Um, and in terms of those therapies which are yet to come and which you may be offering your patients still in the setting of clinical trials, um, there are also um, information explaining CAR-T therapy to CLL patients, again, available within these uh, websites. So with that, uh, moving on now, uh, Anthony, your turn to talk about sequential management after covalent BTK inhibitor therapy in CLL. Great, thank you so much. Um, this is a really timely topic as we have more and more patients progressing on these approved therapies, particularly patients who are treated with covalent BTK inhibitors. So in the style of the first two presentations, I'm gonna also present um, a case. This is a 72-year-old male uh, with symptomatic CLL, unmutated for IGHV, has diabetes, performance status is still good, zero to one, who starts on a BTK inhibitor. And of course, there's two scenarios that we always face when we ultimately discontinue one of these drugs. Scenario one, this patient started ibrutinib. They respond because everybody responds to this class, but they experience paniculitis and arthralgia pretty early on within three months. And then it's managed over time, but within a year, despite the best attempts at modifications, the patient comes off of therapy due to an adverse event. So we'll kind of get into the data for what to do in that scenario later. And then scenario two, the patient starts acalabrutinib. They respond well to therapy. They tolerate it well. They're not having a lot of AEs. But three years later, they have clinical progression. They have lymph nodes. They have night sweats. You are really uh, interested in understanding mechanisms of resistance. They have a C481 mutation. The patient is progressing. They have resistant disease. And then the question comes up what to do in that particular situation. So the first part of this conversation will be characterizing BTK resistance and intolerance and trying to set the landscape for how often these events are occurring for patients. And so initially we'll talk about why planning for sequential therapy is important. And here on the left you see the data for toxicity or intolerance. And these numbers are estimates because all the trials that you saw presented already, slightly different. Um, but the discontinuation rate for BTK inhibitor like ibrutinib with long-term follow-up either real world or clinical trial data ranges between 40 and 50% at between five and seven years. So half of our patients are coming off of these drugs 
within the first five years of starting them in the frontline setting, and half of the discontinuations, the most common reason, is due to an adverse event. And those adverse events are relatively early events. They happen within the first six months, but they can also be later leading to discontinuation. The second scenario is what happens is a patient treated with a continuous therapy who ultimately progress. Um, it's often that these patients will have a resistant mutation, either a BTK mutation with the C4A1S being the most common, or a downstream activating mutation in PLC gamma 2. So all of us who take care of patients with CLL undoubtedly will face these two scenarios very frequently in the clinic. These are the longest-term follow-up data we have from a randomized trial in the frontline setting. This is Resonate 2. If you remember this trial, this was ibrutinib versus chlorambucil. Not the most exciting comparison, but what is exciting about it is that we get a window into patterns of discontinuation with long-term follow-up. And I think these are data at approximately seven years where you can see the discontinuation rate for ibrutinib is 53%. So more than half of patients at seven years will come off due to a discontinuation with 23% of patients discontinuing due to an adverse event. So 50% of the discontinuations are due to AE, followed by progression of disease being the next most common reason. So this is something that we have to plan in advance as we see patients in the clinic, again, because many of the AE-related discontinuations are relatively early. And this is a slide that we put together a while ago, again, highlighting that resistance and intolerance are the major limitations to the covalent BTK inhibitors. You can see data from the OSU group on the left, giving you sort of a time-to-event analysis for progression versus other events. Those are mostly AEs. And then on the right, the spectrum of BTK and PLC gamma 2 mutations and how frequently they occur. If you do the math, between 50-plus and 80% of patients, depending on what study you look at, have a BTK mutation if you look at the time of progression of disease. And this is just a schematic just showing us where these mutations are on the molecule themselves. And the point that I want to make here is that although we'll talk mostly about ibrutinib, both in terms of resistance and intolerance, all of the covalent BTK inhibitors are subject to the same resistance mutations. And so it is essentially never the right answer for a patient who's progressing on ibrutinib to switch to acalabrutinib, or a patient who's progressing on acalabrutinib to switch to ibrutinib or xanabrutinib, for example. It could be a little bit more complicated than that, but essentially you never switch from one covalent to the other in the setting of progression of disease. They're common, these mutations are common to all of these agents. So now that you understand what the landscape is, now what are the options for having to manage or deal with these patients? I'm going to cite some prospective data that I think is relevant. These are data from Kerry Rogers, which is an important study. It took 60 patients who previously received ibrutinib, all of them discontinued due to an adverse event, and then they progressed later and then went on to acalabrutinib. And what's important about this is what she did was she took these five common adverse events, AFib, diarrhea, rash, bleeding, and arthralgia, added up all the times they happened on ibrutinib that led to discontinuation, and then said, okay, if I'm going to switch to acala, how often does it occur? And if it occurs, does it occur less um, at a lower grade? And the bottom line is, of those 41 events, they only occurred 24 times in, on ACALA, and 18 of the 24 were, less, uh, were a lower grade. The one that's most important to me is, look, there were 16 AFib events on ibrutinib, only reoccurred twice on ACALA, and both of those were lower grade. And then not to be outdone, there's been a similar study looking at xanabrutinib, in particular looking at patients who either were intolerant to ibrutinib or acalabrutinib. And the take-home is that in the ibrutinib-intolerant patients, most of the time, 83%, these events didn't reoccur. But the interesting thing to pay attention at ASH uh, this year from Mazur Shadman is that he also looked at ZANU following acala intolerance, and that's kind of a new thing. 
and they have more patients now, 14 invaluable patients. The disease was controlled um, in 93%, but 65% of those patients also didn't have a recurrence of a prior intolerance event. So that tells me you start to imagine these sequencing algorithms. You go from ibrutinib to acala, acala to zanu in the setting of intolerance events. You could probably get away with that most of the time and not have a problem. So what are the strategies that we can use in ibrutinib uh, inhibitor resistance in CLL? Well, what's really supported? The only approved agent where we have prospective and largely real-world and retrospective data uh, in ibrutinib-resistant patients is venetoclax. We have uh, data now that's several years old suggesting that venetoclax induces a high response rate, about 65%, with a median PFS of 24 months in patients who progress on ibrutinib. There are also the non-covalent inhibitors, which we've talked a lot about, and I think sometimes we talk about them as if they're already approved, but they're not. But there is very promising data for um, pirtobrutinib and data for nemtobrutinib to suggest that these drugs are very active in BTK inhibitor-resistant disease. The limited evidence is for the PI3K inhibitors, a class that's been under attack lately. Um, never really studied in this population, but the retrospective data doesn't really support their efficacy. Chemo, same story, never really studied here, but not very promising retrospective data. But what's not appropriate is switching from covalent inhibitor to one another. This is the Murano trial. Um, if you remember, this is VR, then rituximab, um, given for 24 months versus BR. This is a largely chemo-refractory patient population from an earlier line. Venetoclax beats chemotherapy. You can see there the median PFS is 53.6 months. There's an overall survival advantage. And what I don't want to say is this is, what, this is the median PFS you should expect in a patient who's ibrutinib-resistant because this particular trial almost had no patients who previously received a modern agent like ibrutinib. Then we fast forward, or maybe rewind actually, because this study became earlier, for patients who were ibrutinib intolerant or refractory who went on to receive venetoclax as a monotherapy. Here the median number of prior therapies is four, so this is heavily pretreated chemo-refractory population with a lot of DEL17P. Response rate is great. Median PFS is 24 months, and so what you could probably estimate is that the median PFS for venetoclax after an agent like ibrutinib uh, in the setting of resistance is probably between 24 and 53 months. Well, what about the non-covalent BTK inhibitors? Um, this is a, a cartoon looking at um, pirtobrutinib specifically, but the point here is that a drug like ibrutinib requires cysteine-481 to be intact in order to bind covalently. And on the right, you can see this kind of blob over here, pirtobrutinib doesn't require, doesn't bind to cysteine-481, so it doesn't care whether it's mutated or not. It, it has a different binding site, and so it should be able to overcome that particular mechanism of resistance. This is the Bruin trial. This is pirtobrutinib studied in CLL and in um, other B-cell lymphomas. This is specifically the data for CLL, and you can see in a patient population, all of whom had previously received a covalent BTK inhibitor, the overall response rate is 68% quite good. And then you can see from the waterfall plot, all of, the, um, all of these patients previously had a BTK inhibitor. The different color blue is for whether they um, progressed or were intolerant, so it works the same in either situation. And the hash marks are for patients who previously received a BCL2 inhibitor. So very active across the board, high overall response rate. These results will be um, updated on Monday at the ASH meeting. Similar number of patients, but more subgroup analyses and longer-term follow-up. And so what we'll get the sense is that this drug works quite well regardless of which population you look at. And here you can see results stratified by age, 75 or less, prior double 
um, therapy, BTK and BCL2, which Nitin will touch on undoubtedly. Um, High-risk disease, deletion 17P or TP53 mutation, BTK mutational status, or reason for discontinuation. And it doesn't take an expert to look across the overall response rate and see that they're nearly identical regardless of what patient population you study this drug in. It works the same in terms of ORR in everybody, which is quite promising. And then we have longer-term follow-up now, a median of 13.9 months follow-up but the median progression-free survival as per the abstract is 19.4 months. So the response rate is high, the responses are durable, but who cares if a drug is active, it also has to be well-tolerated, and this is a window into the safety data. Very low discontinuation rate when these data were presented of 2% um, or less uh, due to an adverse event. That's quite promising. But then the BTK-related toxicities are low. AFib or flutter, only 2% hypertension only 7%, and so the BTK classic covalent uh, toxicities really don't seem to plague this drug very much in terms of its adverse events. This is also a very interesting analysis to pre presented by Nirav Shah at this meeting, and he did something similar to what Kerry Rogers did. He looked at all the patients on Bruin with CLL, mantle cell, or other lymphoma who discontinued due to intolerance, and you can see the, the AE listed there, AFib for example, the numbers are added up, the number of events, and then how often those events reoccurred on um, pirtobrutinib. And the take-home from this, and I would encourage you to study his poster or his abstract, is that while they do reoccur sometimes, they're relatively infrequent, very similar to what we saw from those other data, and at low grade most of the time. And so even in the setting of ibrutinib intolerance or acala intolerance, for example, this drug does seem to be very well tolerated for patients. There is another non-covalent BTK inhibitor called nemtabrutinib, uh, and this data has been presented and updated several times by Jennifer Woyak, and this drug is also a non-covalent inhibitor, so a similar mode of action, and here you see data um, from 57 patients treated with CLL, and you can see that the response rate is also promising for these patients at 53%, and so patients are responding to this drug as well. Slightly different um, adverse event profile, but pay attention to the orange curve, that's the duration of response. And you can see for all patients treated with CLL who were valuable, the median was not reached. And then again, the orange curve, pay attention to, this is the progression-free survival, particularly in BTK-resistant patients, or rather the blue curve, um, and uh, the median there has been reached at 15.7 months. There will be updated data um, presented uh, by Jennifer as well at this meeting for this drug. And what's really interesting from the data that's available in the abstract is not only do we have data on response, which I showed you for pirtobrutinib, but they're also providing data now on the median duration of response and median progression-free survival in patients who are double exposed, Cis481 mutated, DEL17P, and uh, patients who are IGHV mutated. And you can say that median PFS ranges between 10.1 uh, for the double exposed patients to 26.3 in the garden variety cis 481 mutated covalent BTK progressor. Of course, the story of CLL continues to evolve. No drug class is perfect, and we're learning more and more about resistance patterns for even the drugs that are yet to be approved, which is pretty cool. We already know a lot about why the non-covalents may not work in the future, and these are data um, presented um, uh, recently in New England Journal of Medicine looking at new mutations in BTK that affect the binding of the non-covalent BTK inhibitors clustering around the tyrosine kinase catalytic domain. And so this is new opportunity to say, even though these drugs are wonderful, they're active, they induce durable remissions, 
Maybe we learn something about mechanisms of resistance and we can apply new drugs in the future. And that ushers in a new era of the BTK um, degraders and asking the question whether or not these drugs can overcome these new resistant mutations. And this is one drug that will be presented at the meeting, NX2127, which is cool because it brings the BTK protein to the ubiquitin ligase complex, sort of the, the machinery in the cell that can chop up proteins and destroy them, and allows for degradation of BTK. And because of the way the drug is designed, it shouldn't really matter whether or not these point mutations are present. And so it should theoretically be able to degrade wild-type BTK just as well as it degrades mutated BTK. So sort of ushering in the future. This is the data that's available um, from the abstract for NX2127 associated with responses and clinical benefit in heavily pretreated patients. The median number of prior therapies was six. And then, of course, you can see uh, that there are patients with poor prognostic features, including these BTK mutations for covalent or non-covalent inhibitors, BCL2 mutations, which is um, related to venetoclax resistance, and in patients who've been previously exposed to both BTK and BCL2 inhibitors. So back to our tumor board uh, and discussion for the group. The first patient is a ibrutinib intolerant patient, and maybe I'll start with Nitin just to give us your sense on what would you do with this patient who has paniculitis and arthralgia, kind of what's your strategy for management of BTK intolerance, um, and uh, you know, what would you do in this particular situation? Yes, I think uh, you know, one, one certainly option would be to lower the dose of ibrutinib and see if that, I mean, I think that's an easy thing to do and try that for a few weeks or a month to see if that would work. So I think that's, that's certainly something first I would do. But if the side effect were to recur, uh, I think in that situation, if a patient has a good control of the disease so far, and I mean, this particular patient is within one year of therapy, but if a patient has good control of the disease, many times I just hold the BTK inhibitor at that time and wait until their disease progresses, and which could be several months to sometimes actually a few years. Is and it, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I'm saying so, and at that time, when the disease were to progress, at that time, certainly look at the options for the patients. It could be a more selective BTK, non-colon BTK, all those are, I think, valid options. I was gonna ask you, is there any one adverse event related to ibrutinib, for example, that you think is more amenable to dose reductions um, or dose holds than, than others? Um, I mean, I think arthralgias and myalgias, uh, I think in my practice, I think I've seen that that improves uh, some, for some of the patients. Um, but uh, others, I mean, I think the side effects, diarrhea as well, I think sometimes lowering the dose, that okay. helps. And then, John, since you have already alluded to the non-covalence being approved, or, will, or you know, in the future to be approved, in this situation, what are you going to do if you have an intolerant patient who is absolutely cannot stay on the drug that they were started on, will you more likely switch to a non-covalent or venetoclax, or, or how will you handle that situation? I, I like to try to keep a patient as long as possible in the same class of drug before changing to the class of drug. I think somebody alluded to earlier about thinking about this as a long-term strategy in terms of we're talking about wanting to have our patients under control for a longer period of time. So I'm, I've got quite a high threshold for looking to change the class of drug. I think, um, I think what we've all been impressed when we've seen you, uh, and it's largely been you doing it, presenting the pertubrutinib data is the safety profile of the drug, so it is very attractive. But again, I'm wondering whether I would do the same thing, look to change to the other covalent first, see if I can manage it. I agree with Nitin's comments about dose reducing. I think that can be useful. 
It's actually harder, of course, to do with a calibrutinib and zanabrutinib, where you don't have the different sizes of tablets to be able to do the dose reduction without coming down from the, the, the BD to the once-a-day dosing. But um, I think uh, then the question then of do we keep pertubrutinib in reserve versus using it earlier will depend very much on the emerging clinical trial of the head-to-head -head studies that we're seeing coming out right now. But right now, uh, I think I'd be looking to move to another covalent drug and, the, and then on to pertubrutinib and then keeping venetoclax for the next line of therapy. And then, Barbara, I'm going to assume you're not going to switch to a PI3K inhibitor in scenario <laughs> two. So just to focus it on uh, the non-covalent, let's say, Pirto versus venetoclax in the setting of BTK resistance, how will you handle that if you have both drugs available? Yeah, you're absolutely correct, um, Anthony. Um, I mean, both drugs are in case PIRTO or another um, non-covalent binding BTK inhibitor would be available, would be appropriate in that situation. I think I would discuss that with the patient again with the option of time-limited treatment. Um, I would rather tend for the time-limited treatment venetoclax plus rituximab because, as John pointed out already, with respect to the long um, marathon we have now with our patients trying to get a normal life expectancy, it would be nice to have even more treatment options and therefore still keeping the non-covalent binding BTK inhibitor then for the other relapse later on. Great, thank you. So here are recommendations for scenario one. Uh, this is the intolerant patient. Additional ibrutinib dose adjustments are unlikely to work. Current data support the use of a more selective agent like Acala or Xanyu. The non-covalent inhibitors may be useful in this setting, and switching to venetoclax is also supported by evidence. In the setting of resistance, there's no other covalent inhibitor that are appropriate here, so switching from Acala to Xanyu, for example, doesn't make sense. Um, Ven plus or minus CD20 is supported by Murano and other evidence. The non-covalent inhibitors, while not approved, are um, supported by clinical trial data, and PI3K inhibitor uh, could be thought of, but would not be our first option in this situation. And then the take-home message is intolerance is the most common reason for discontinuation of a covalent BTK inhibitor. Testing for molecular resistance to a covalent BTK inhibitor is not required in clinical practice at that time. You can do it to learn, but it's not required. Following discontinuation due to intolerance, options include an alternate covalent BTK inhibitor, venetoclax, or a non-covalent inhibitor. And following progression on a covalent inhibitor um, in the setting of progression, venetoclax is a standard of care. However, data for the non-covalents are very promising but not yet approved. Thank you. And uh, right over to you on that very important question of what do we, how do we address the challenge of that double refractory CLL patient population? All right. So, yeah, so I'm going to build up on some of the themes which Anthony was just talking about, you know, talking about relapsed CLL, especially talking about this double refractory patient population. So let's start with the case again. Uh, so patient Robert presents to you, has symptomatic CLL at the age 70, uh, well-controlled hypertension, unmutated V-gene, Tells 11Q on fish panel, and no P53 mutation. So you initially treat with acalabrutinib, patient response, but progresses after th about three years. And then you have given him venetoclax rituximab per the Morana study, um, and then he has again progression uh, about two years later at the end of uh, two years of therapy with the Morano study. So I guess so that's kind of looking at that particular kind of a patient. I think the question is, how do you define a double refractory patient population? So this is actually a review article which actually Anthony just published in American Journal of Hematology. So this figure is taken from that, where you know I think 
it's a, it's a bit, obviously, certainly there are patients who are double exposed, meaning that they could have a BTK inhibitor in the past, they maybe they were, uh, had a side effect to it, they stopped the BTK inhibitor, then they go on the venetoclax-based therapy. So that is called, you know, double exposed, that they have exposure to both classes of drug. But how do you define double refractory? And I think in this, uh, Anthony um, and his colleagues did a good job in kind of describing what those patients may represent. So there are different buckets here. Um, so if you look at on the left side, patients who start a BTK with or without CD20 antibody, if they progress on therapy, uh, certainly that progression on ibrutinib or acalabrutinib, then you go to venrituxin, and if they progress within a couple of years of that, you know, that patient could be called a double refractory. They have uh, refractoriness to both BTK and VEN. If a patient you're treating based on the CLL14 and a time-limited approach with VEN, um, I think progression on when within the first year of CLL14 would be extremely rare, but I guess could happen. And if that a patient were to go to a BTK and then they progress, then certainly a double refractory patient population. Or uh, I guess if a patient, you do a time limited therapy of VENG for one year, progresses within a couple of years, uh, you retreat them with a VENG-based regimen, or you could do a BTK and a better, and then you, know, you can kind of define that. So some of these are, I think, kind of expert opinion to see what should be what would consider a double refractory, but I think it's important for the field to define, I guess, what a double refractory is. But in a big picture view, it's a patient's where you think, um, which we had an exposure to a BTK, a refractory, and then venetoclax, and they are refractory. So this is the work uh, also, uh, Anthony did a real-world analysis for a large number of patients who um, discontinue, 382 patients who discontinue BTK and BCL2 inhibitors, and what, they, uh, what he reported was that the median time to discontinuation and then the subsequent line of therapy um, was about 5.5 months. So, uh, so I think this is a group of patients which remains an unmet medical need where we need really better defined therapies who have failed uh, BTK, covalent BTK, such as ibrutinib or calabrutinib. So what are the options we have for these patients? You know, so, uh, so, th so there are multiple things which have been uh, which are being studied right now. So obviously some of the stuff we discussed from Anthony, including non-covalent BTK inhibitors. Uh, there's also a discussion about using venetoclax again. Can you retreat with venetoclax? And I will show you some data. And then uh, CAR T-cell therapy, and again, that's another novel strategy which we'll briefly talk about uh, for these patients. And so I think in many of these patients, I think it's also important to realize, and as was discussed before, that not just the BTK mutations, but you have patients on venetoclax who can develop BCL2 mutations as well. So I think it's important to, to uh, know about these mutations and if you have uh, availability of these assay in your practice, if you're switching therapies, I think make sure you do check for at least BTK and PLC gamma 2 mutation before starting a patient uh, or a subsequent line of therapy with a covalent BTK inhibitor. So is venetoclax uh, retreatment an option uh, for a patient? And I think so this is, a, again, uh, a retrospective analysis uh, looking at retreatment with venetoclax. So what the investigators did uh, was they looked at venetoclax, which is VEN1, is the first line of therapy, uh, in any line of therapy, and then patients who got venetoclax again in a subsequent line of therapy. And again, this is a multiple center collaborative effort uh, looking at these patients. And many of these patients, as is highlighted in the, in the bar graph, is that many of them had a prior, obviously, ibrutinib exposure as well. As you can see here, um, the, uh, many of these patients received uh, as monotherapy, and, but majority of these patients had, this was, venetoclax was given 
as a, uh, not as a first line of therapy, but subsequent lines of therapy with two prior lines of therapy for these patients. And this is what, uh, you know, I think a very nice data set to look at that patients can respond to, to venetoclaxary treatment as is kind of shown here. This is a response to the VEN2, which is the second line of treatment with venetoclax. Uh, when you use venetoclax again, and again, this is the PFS for these patients, uh, the median may be around 20, 25 months or so. So I think it kind of gives you a retrospective analysis that you can reuse, potentially reuse VEN for your patients once they have previously have been exposed to venetoclax. Now this uh, question is being looked at in a prospective trial and a very nicely worded revenge trial, <laughs> revenge trial, where um, uh, the, the, the patients who had uh, prior uh, venetoclax uh, VEN-G treatment could be retreated with venetoclax VEN-G again. And as you can see, the primary impact of the study is overall response rate at the end of treatment. So this study is, uh, we're still waiting for data for this study eventually when it's reported. Anthony already showed the pitobrutinib data, but just kind of, I think it's a very important drug for the field. And as was mentioned, this is also uh, a drug which has been shown to work for these double refractory patient population. So again, I think Anthony showed exactly the same figure, but I just want to highlight is that if you look at the patients with a prior BCL2 inhibitor, and these are the ones which are marked with this red uh, hashtag here, you can clearly see that these patients who had prior, uh, and all of these patients had prior ibrutinib or acalabrutinib, that majority of these patients were double refractory uh, or double exposed in this setting uh, are responding to, uh, to pitobrutinib. So I think this is a very effective drug for the field for this double refractory or double exposed patient populations to say. And again, kind of a similar that uh, Anthony also alluded to, that the response rates are uh, similar depending on uh, what prior therapies they have received. Now, the other class of drugs, or I guess the class of, is, is CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, so certainly this is a very, very effective strategy uh, in DLBCL, multiple myeloma, um, uh, adult and pediatric ALL. And we have seen this data from Transcend 004 study, which is a CAR T cell therapy uh, in patients with CLL. So this is a data set which was last updated actually now uh, some time ago. Um, and I, as far as I know, there is no presentation planned for this coming ASH meeting. But nonetheless, I think this data set is quite interesting. So again, traditionally, as uh, you may know, I mean, standard lymphodepletion is by a flu uh, and then patients got lysosil. Uh, which is a CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy for these patients with a refractory uh, CLL. So, uh, again, with the caveat of small number of patients, as you can see, 22 patients were treated, uh, but when you look at the response rates, uh, you can see high rates of response rates in these patients with heavily pretreated patient population. And then, I think, very importantly, when they looked at MRD responses, and, and they are looking at both MRD responses in the blood and the marrow, and you can see here that almost 70 to 80, 60 to 70% of the patients were MRD negative in, in blood and bone marrow after receiving the CD19 CAR-T. So, and similar data, this is a, you know, a, a multi-center trial, but several single-center studies from the group from Seattle and others have also reported some very nice single-center data with the use of CD19 CAR-T for patients with with CLL. 
Uh, this is their uh, duration of response and progression-free survival. Um, so again, here uh, you can see that, you know, certainly, I mean, I think patients are relapsing after CAR-T, so this is not a 100% solution for all the patients. Uh, you can see the curve is dropping and the median may be around, around maybe 18 to 20 months. Uh, but certainly I think there are some patients who are remaining in remission uh, one plus year down the line. And I think um, I I'm eagerly awaiting for a follow-up of this data to see the durability of remissions uh, for these patients because I think this data set is now a couple of years old. And then they also looked at, uh, in their analysis, about this double refractory patient population, and as is kind of evident from the curve, um, you know, that group of patients also responds. So again, there is no, because this is a CD19-targeted uh, immunotherapy, I think whether you're resistant to venetoclax or you have a BTK mutation or BCL2 mutation, that should not really matter uh, in terms of response. So, so far, uh, early set data looks, looks promising for this double refractory patient population. Now, whenever you're looking at a CAR-T data, you have to obviously look in the toxicity profile, and specifically uh, rates of what is called cytokine release syndrome, as well as neurotoxicity. So again, if you look at the higher grade CRS, which is grade three or higher, it was uh, two patients, 9%. If you look at the higher grade neurotoxicity, which was about uh, 21% to say. So again, I mean, I think that's something, if you are using CAR-T in your practice, I think that's something to clearly watch for and there are a specific management plan in terms of management of these patients with the use of tesoluzumab um, and steroids uh, for patients with CRS. Uh, there is also actually very nice data uh, which uh, was uh, published from the Seattle group, uh, Fred Hutch group, about the use of concurrent ibrutinib, where um, what they see is that patients who are on concurrent ibrutinib, they appear to be uh, more um, expansion of the CAR-T cells uh, after giving the, the CD19-directed CAR-T, as well as they had uh, lower grades of uh, cytokine release syndrome, so CRS. So I think that's a strategy which is also has been explored in the context of lysocell, um, and I think that's something we have to look forward to, to see how that field pans out. But certainly, ibrutinib appears to uh, improve the safety profile for sure of the CD19-directed CAR-T cell therapy and I think that's now being looked in some larger studies now as well. So this is the uh, data set, again, from the lysocell study I was just alluding to, where, again, what they see is that when you combine ibrutinib with lysocell together, uh, there appears to be, again, with the caveat of small numbers, again, we are seeing excellent CR rates and also high rates of um, MRD negativity, again, with uh, about 19 patients treated in this data set. Now, before I close, I created some kind of uh, summary of some of the new drugs, I guess, in the pipeline, which are being presented at this ASH meeting. We heard already about several of the updates we are going to hear uh, from Anthony and many others. So we have um, uh, an ASH uh, oral presentation with several new BCL2 inhibitors. So there's a drug called uh, Lisaftoclax, uh, which Matt Davis will be presenting on Monday. There's a drug uh, from Bygene, BGP11417. This is, again, a novel BCL2 inhibitor. Uh, there is actually a dual BCL2 XL inhibitor, which is not being presented in this meeting, but was presented at the last ASH meeting and is currently in clinical trials. Um, and there's also um, a PROTAC targeting both BCL2 and BCL-XL, which will be presented uh, preclinical work 
uh, actually tomorrow afternoon. Um, and then on the right side, you can see there's a PKC beta inhibitor. This is an oral PKC beta. PKC beta is downstream of BTK. So it doesn't really matter if you have a BTK or PLC gamut mutation. Uh, if you're inhibiting PKC beta, that should work. So that will be presented by uh, uh, James Blatchley on, on Monday in an oral presentation in a clinical abstract. And then Anthony already mentioned about the BTK degrader Neurox compound. And then certainly I think there's a lot of excitement about C20 biospecifics in the field, um, certainly in the field of DLBCL, but now that's being studied um, in the context of CLL as well as also for Richter's transformation. There is some update for Richter's in this, in this meeting as well. So I think that's a new kind of pipeline of drugs, some of the things which I thought was interesting. Um, so if you're interested, please uh, go to these sessions and learn more about these, these agents. And then kind of uh, closing up, again, this is from the same review article where I think you can kind of build your uh, kind of a game plan of these patients depending on what they have received before. So I think I don't want to go into the detail, but I think what this slide shows you is that you can sequence these therapies, but the sequencing is very important based on what the patient has received before, what kind of response they had before. Uh, if you're talking about venetoclax, how much time they were in remission with venetoclax, what kind of side effects they had if they had a previous BTK inhibitor, and then you can plan out your next therapy. Many of these choices here list non-colon BTK inhibitor, which again, as of now, they're not yet FDA approved, but hopefully we should have that fairly soon. So I guess we'll go back to the question again. So this is a patient who, uh, a 70-year-old, unmutated V gene, 11Q on fish, uh, no P53, uh, progressed to Onacal after three years, and now is progressing on when uh, are, um, you know, after two years. Um, so what are the options here? Some of the options are listed here. So maybe I will start with you, Barbara. What are your thoughts about this patient? Um, I would uh, try to get in a clinical trial since we, in Germany at least, I don't know we, uh, how it is in other European countries, we don't yet have access to HRT cells, um, only um, within clinical trials or by specific antibodies. There we have a number of trials. Those would be the cellular therapies would be uh, my first preferred option. And with the age of 70, I even would consider allogeneic stem cell transplantation in that patient. I mean, he has all risk factors yeah. uh, for, for very high risk and unfavorable prognosis. Right. Anthony, any role for re-exposure to a covalent BTK inhibitor? Uh, I would um, no, this patient treat was um, progressed. Oh, yeah, so I would say no. Yeah. Um, I probably would favor either the non-covalent, but I think then retreatment is reasonable here. Right. I mean, that paper that you were quoting, yeah. most of those patients, many of them had um, progressed within 24 months and right. still had durable remission. Right. So I think it's still worth thinking about. Sure. And John, final comment? Yeah, we, uh, we're using our NGS panel to relook to see whether we can find the original mutation. We've certainly had the odd patient who's had the C4 81S mutation then gets treated with venetoclax and then it relapsed, that mutation is no longer there. The caveat to all of that, of course, is that probably half of our patients in who we've got resistance, we don't know what the mechanism is. But in the setting of somebody who's lost the mutation that led to the resistance, it can sometimes be worthwhile going. But I have to say I'm with Barbara here. I, I, we'd be looking for a clinical trial. We've always looking to have clinical trials open for this patient population, and uh, we've got a number of clinical trials open right now that we'd be looking to try to put those patients on. 
I have to say the two-year time point after end of treatment is right on my limit of when I would be re-challenged with venetoclax or not. I'm looking for more than two years. But you, you could, again, go, go, go back. But um, just because we've got access to the assays, I would be looking to see whether the mutation was there or not and questioning whether you could go back to a BTK inhibitor. I'm quite aware that the kind of, we're talking anecdotes here in terms of the emergence of the data we've seen in, in, in those settings. All right. So just kind of a last few slides. So um, as Anthony mentioned, covalent BTK inhibitors are unlikely to work. Uh, Re-exposure to venetoclax, we just kind of discussed. Uh, you know, there is uh, increasing evidence that that could be used. Certainly a clinical trial, non-covalent BTK inhibitor or CAR-T therapy appear uh, effective. I think we shouldn't really forget about PA3 kinase inhibitors, especially in the relapsed refractory setting. They certainly could be uh, quite effective and provide some, some durable remission uh, for some patients. So I think that certainly is an option as well, a potential option as well for this patient. I guess some take-home messages, but I think you already know this. <laughs> well, we've got um, kind of, actually we've got a whole, oh, a whole eight minutes left of where we can go back and kind of address some of these issues and go back and look through the question and answers from the audience. Now, I have been scanning these quite carefully, and a lot of them have been uh, quiz. I guess the one area that we are getting questions about we haven't really addressed among our here is that elephant in the room of Richter transformation. So, so Nitin, how, how do you think nowadays about Richter, and particularly in that setting of often novel agent refractoriness, but of course not that we think that Richter's itself responds well to these novel agents. Yeah, I think Richter's uh, truly is another <laughs> a big unmet medical need we have right now. Like even if you look at the new therapies we have, so certainly I think some nice data combination with venetoclax with chemoimmunotherapy uh, from from Matt Davids with our chop van and previously epoch R van. I think as a frontline strategy seems, um, seems a good, good choice, I think, at this time. So, but generally, chemotherapy-based regimen is generally the first approach for these patients. But again, we know with that, you know, the response rates are only 50 60%, and the median survival is less than, less than one year. Um, in our group, we have used checkpoint inhibitors to some success in clinical trials. So they're also now on the NCCN guidelines uh, using nivolumab plus ibrutinib. Um, but I think I personally, I think I'm looking at more and more data with the immune therapies, so such as uh, CAR T cell therapy, um, bispecifics data, which is emerging. And at the end of the day, I think, I think all long-term remissions I have seen after, CAR, after uh, Richter's is with an allergenic stem cell transplant. So I think that certainly is an approach we should not forget about for these patients. So just kind of brief comments. Sure. Now, Anthony, you kind of alluded to this already in your presentation, but there is a patient somewhere in the audience who's asking the question, or maybe at home. Uh, she's been on ibrutinib um, for five years, um, but she's got fatigue, bruising, and bleeding. Um, uh, is it time to switch to a new drug? W would you change class? Would you change to an alternative? I know we kind of alluded to it, but given that we've got a very specific question here. Yeah, I might, I might, you know, if the AEs are intolerable, and it sounds like maybe they are at this point, I might just stop and wait rather than switch. You know, there's limited but encouraging data to suggest that ibrutinib can induce durable remission. So, and I think you maybe mentioned this already, um, maybe a year or longer before you need to do anything. So I probably would do that, and then if they progress, we'll go with a more selective 
BTK inhibitor because you, you're probably assuming at that point that they're not yet resistant to the drug. Yep. Um, Barbara, here's another patient, 67-year-old, unmutated, uh, um, needing uh, treatment. Should I opt for a BTK inhibitor and then venetoclax or use venetoclax as I CD20 antibody? What, uh, what's your advice for this patient here? Uh, yeah, we don't know yet, as, <laughs> as we don't have the data for, from the CL17 study, for example. Um, as already maybe a little bit discussed before, I would be rather... The combination of BTK inhibitor plus venetoclax would not be my first choice. And with respect to BTKI or venetoclax plus CD20 antibody, um, it would depend on the patient preference. Maybe the PFS is less long when I use time-limited treatment, but um, the option of retreatment, how important is that for the patient? And that's the key aspects I would discuss with him. Um, in terms of using, so say we are going to use venetoclax as frontline therapy, um, are your indications for treating changing in terms of our classical IWCLL criteria? In other words, are you going to wait till a patient's bulky and then potentially, or would you kind of potentially, Anthony, come in a little bit earlier than you would otherwise if you're going to use a venetoclax therapy based upon looking to reduce that risk of uh, tumor lysis syndrome? I think in general I'm still sticking to IWCLL. I, I don't think the risk is, if you know how to use the drug, I don't think the risk is high regardless of the risk group, so I, I wouldn't change based on that. Um, so here's another one. Um, so somebody who's on ibrutinib, um, doing well, but still has lymphocytosis that's really persistent. Is that something that worries you, or would you just keep on going with the BTK inhibitor? Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, that's something, if a patient is otherwise clinically responding, uh, no other cy no cytopenias, lymph nodes are improving, symptom vitally, patient is improving, I continue these patients on, on, on BTK inhibitor. I would say that sometimes if the white knot has come down to normal range and then you see it start going up, this 15,000, 20,000, 30,000, in that situation, I think you should really check for a BTK-resistant mutations because any of these patients may be developing resistance at that time. But for uh, reactive lymphocytosis, uh, which is persistent, we just watch them. Can, can I add one comment to that, mm, too? Of course, I think sure. a lot of people forget that the original paper, I think it was John Bird, the median time to resolution of the lymphocytosis is different depending on whether they're IGHV mutated or unmutated. The unmutated resolve twice as quickly. So I think it's also important to help set expectations to know their IGHV status before you start to panic. I haven't seen a longer term follow-up on that grower, but I do remember that John's paper suggested there was no difference in outcome between the people that took longer to Correct. respond. Correct, yeah. I haven't seen that followed up again since, but that was John's original observation, wasn't it? Barbara, the age-old question we have of mutated immunoglobulin genes in a, in a patient, they know that they've got a potential chance of cure with FCR. Would, is there still a role for FCR with the, in, the, um, in the mutated patients who are young, or would you now be using... I'm going I'm to come back, don't worry. You can take that smirk off your face. I'm going to come back to all of you on this one. <laughs> yeah, um, I think um, it is still an option um, because when we looked at from the CL13 Gaia study, those patients receiving FCR, indeed, we did not see a big difference to venetoclax or venetuzumab 
However, considering the rare event of secondary um, bone marrow malignancies, MDSA, ML in 5% of the patients, this would be certainly something which can be avoided, but coming, uh, con concluding here, this is a really a small number of, of patients. So that's, for me, the only patient uh, chemimmunotherapy regimen. I would not consider benamustin rituximab anymore in patients as a good treatment choice because as the data from the CD14 study suggests that we may have in this subgroup of patients also with Venge a curative potential with extremely long-lasting um, remissions. Sure. Anthony? I mean, I'm surrounded by the group that invented it. Yeah. The group that got the approval. Um, so what can I say? I don't, I don't use it, but I, sure. I look to these guys too. Of course, at the MD Anderson, you've been looking at the FCR ibrutinib combination for that group of patients. Yeah. I guess if we could identify who were that 60% who were really going to respond, that would make a, perhaps a, right. a difference to us. But you've certainly been looking still at using an oval agent with chemotherapy, which is not an area that many of us have continued to explore that much. Yeah, I mean, I think so I should say that we have stopped looking at that now. So, so the IFCG trial you were mentioning, so a couple of years ago, we stopped the cruel to the trial because of exactly what Barbara and you kind of mentioned, that the responses were, were quite durable and actually quite excellent. But again, we had a couple of patients with therapeutic MDS and AML. And I think after that, we elected that, uh, that we should not really pursue it anymore. So... I think our, so we also have completely stopped using chemotherapy of any kind for patients with CLL, uh, especially in the frontline setting. Well, believe it or not, that's all we've got time for. That eight minutes went past in a flash of an eye, and the two hours went past really quickly for me too. All that remains for me to do is to, um, is to thank, uh, first of all, Barbara, Anthony, and Nitin for taking the time to be with us today. All of you in the audience for... Uh, sticking with us and for the great questions which you fired at us and of course uh, everyone at Peerview and everyone else behind the scenes who've made all this possible. I've certainly enjoyed it. I hope you have too and thank you very much and see you next year. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education and the CLL Society. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NMB 860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AbbVie, AstraZeneca, Beijing, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Lilly, Merck & Company Incorporated, and Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC.